1: This
0: isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. Everybody in the world keeps secrets, and now there's a way to basically find out the world's secrets, and that's what we do in today's podcast. So I have on Seth Davidowitz, who wrote the book, Everybody Lies, But it's not that everybody lies, it's that, again, everybody covers up what they don't want others to know. But the one entity they don't hide from is Google. So we know the world's data, we know the world's secrets from what they enter into Google and other sources of data. For instance, Seth tells me about this incredible fetish that exists only in this one country. Seth also reveals by the end of the podcast, really the secret of all happiness. There's so much amazing, mind-blowing data and secrets that we talked about today. I was just blown away. So here it is. Seth Stevens Davidowitz wrote, Everybody Lies, big data, new data, and what the internet could tell us about who we really are. And there's so much fascinating. Data in in here, like I was really fascinated by some of the searches about relationships. Can you describe some some of that? Uh, And then I want to get into your background and everything. But there's like just there's just a lot of interesting facts in here. Yes, about what people search for and what that tells us about humans.
1: Well, there are lots of things. One of the things I talked about is how you can't really trust what people say on social media, but people are more honest on search. So on social media, when people are talking about their husbands and they're posting about their husbands. It's my husband is the best. My husband is the greatest. My husband is so cute. My husband's adorable. My husband's amazing. And then when you look at Google searches, it's my husband's a jerk. My husband's annoying. My husband's cheating on me. I think my husband's gay. It's like a totally different view of relationships on the social media, which is public and Google, which is private. Uh, So that was definitely one of the things. Well,
0: could both be true? Like it could be, We don't know if it's the same people posting that their husband is adorable. That's also searching for...
1: I think it just shows that the data you get depends on the incentives you give people. So, uh, you know, I think just like Google is kind of biased towards negative things because you don't necessarily want to tell... Like if your relationship's going great, you don't necessarily feel the need to search Google for anything because you have nothing to fix. But if your husband or wife is annoying you, then you search on Google. And on social media you don't have an incentive to tell all your friends, you know, I can't stand my husband or my husband's so annoying. My husband's a jerk. My husband's, I think my husband's gay. Uh, so if you just looked at social media data and said, that's marriage, you would be getting not the full picture.
0: Yeah. Like what other, what other like marriage related things did you, did you find? I mean, you talk about a lot of them in here or, or relationship related things. What do people search on?
1: That the number one complaint that people have about both a marriage and a relationship are that it's sexless, uh, and that, like, kill and, and the number one complaint that husbands, wives, boyfriends, and girlfriends have about their partner is that the partner won't have sex with me. Like, it easily beats the number two complaint that the partner won't text me back. And, like, there are surprising, surprising things. There are twice as many searches for my boyfriend won't have sex with me than that my girlfriend won't have sex with me, uh, which goes against, like, we usually think that men, you know, young men particularly who aren't yet married, usually uh, are—always want sex and— there's kind of a stereotype that women are, uh, you know, wanted less. But uh, in the data, if anything, it it seems to be reversed that there are twice twice as many complaints that a boyfriend uh, is t- won't have sex than the girlfriend won't have sex.
0: What about the male female breakdown on you know? I think my significant other is cheating
1: on me. Uh, it's a little hard to fully break down. Like Google's data is all anonymous and aggregate, so you don't know always what the breakdown is, unless you can guess, like boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, 95% of people are straight, so you can kind of do it. And I do a whole bunch of things on sexual stuff yeah. where it's pretty easy to know the gender because people say, like, my penis. And it's like, if someone says my penis, they're male. And, like, I found that, that men have more questions about their penis than any other body part, more than their lungs, liver, ears, nose, and throat combined. Uh, <laughs> and for every 100 questions men ask about their penis, they ask five about their brain. Uh. And the other thing I found is that one of the top questions men have about their penis is how big is my penis on Google, which is like a totally ridiculous question to ask Google, right? Like that's not the way to find out. (laughs) And I just found out this is actually a brand new discovery that uh, the James Altucher podcast, the first to hear that men uh, sometimes type into Google, like just report in a full sentence, the size of their penis. So they go like, my penis is four inches. My penis is five inches. My penis is six inches. My penis is seven inches, whatever. And when you actually analyze all this data, it's a normal distribution of reported to Google penis sizes uh, centered around five inches. Wow. Which I don't know what to make of that, but I was just like, that. Is, it, it just shows, I think one of the things that the Google search research kind of uncovers is the weirdness of humanity. You know, I don't even like to say it's weird because everybody's weird, then maybe nobody's weird. But you definitely see uh, things in the data that people don't otherwise. Talk about another one that I mentioned in Everybody Lies is uh, that the top search that starts my husband wants in India is my husband wants me to breastfeed him. And that's India and nowhere else. And there, in India, in, like, in the United States, if there are questions about how to breastfeed, about 99% of them are how to breastfeed a child. Uh, but in, in India, they're about evenly split between how to breastfeed a partner and how to breastfeed a child which actually is kind of int- is very very interesting. It, you know, some people just find it amusing or think it's silly or whatever, but it actually shows that i guess a fetish can develop in one part of the world in pretty large numbers without ever being openly talked about. Uh, actually after i published that finding a lot of people interviewed doctors in India and they said that they had no idea, you know, that they never heard of this, but i'm i'm 100% confident based on the data this is a thing and it's just not talked about.
0: It's so fascinating because like is it really border specific? Like, does Pakistan not have that fetish, or
1: yeah, uh, Pakistan is has it a South little bit, Asian thing, little bit. or just it's India? India and a little bit, Pakistan as well, uh, but not not nothing much beyond that.
0: You mentioned the the earlier thing was like a brand new discovery. Like, wh- where do you get this data right now?
1: Yeah, so it's I just use Google Trends, and sometimes I see things, and I haven't seen anybody report that my penis is blank inches. Like, I'll, I'll look if anybody else has has said that, but I've I've kind of moved beyond that because. Initially, when I was doing this, like I do the, I think I'd go to like give a talk and I'd say how many people know about Google Trends, which Google reports anonymous aggregate data, and like two people would raise their hands. Nobody knew about Google Trends, so it was kind of this great secret for understanding humanity. But now it's well known, and there're you know, dozens of academic papers written every month using Google Trends data, and people are tweeting Google Trends findings. So it's a little harder to uh, find anything oh. new.
0: But, but that seems like just academic data. like I think the on average, people I know don't explore the human condition by looking at Google Trends because you have to look at a lot. Like you have to sort of ask lots of questions to Google Trends to really find a pattern or a trend.
1: That's right. I know didn't you do like a stand-up comedy set based on Google Trends or is that someone else?
0: I did something about it, but I also I did a lot of stuff on on reviews on Google Maps because oh, right. I didn't realize that every location on Google Maps has Reviews like Yelp, and so people would spend the time to like review the Eiffel Tower or the Mount Rushmore, <laughs> and it's just like this. Uh, but but what's interesting and where where this kind of intersects with what you're saying is that Google is not only a place to find information you don't know. And Google's almost like a confessional, and you mentioned this in the book. Like for instance, before people have children, you said um, it was something like I forgot what the ratio was, seven to one or something. People wanted to know if they would would regret not having kids. And then after they had kids, they would sort of report back to Google and, and basically search on people who regret having kids. It's almost like they are outsourcing some of their thoughts to the Google verse.
1: Yeah, exactly. So yeah, before people have kids, it's, it's highly tilted in favor. The question is, will I regret not having kids? And after the fact, uh, it's tilted in the favor of people are far more likely to report to Google regretting having kids than uh, regretting not having kids. Now, I think part of that is people might just be having a bad moment. So I don't think everybody who searches on Google, I regret having, you know, my son or my daughter, uh, that they view this as a major life mistake. And if they and if you ask them uh, day after day after day, they'd say, you know, this is the worst thing I ever did. They may just have not had a good night of sleep, and uh, you know their kids. Maybe it's during during the COVID pandemic. All well, this research was before the COVID pandemic, but uh, their kids have a million problems, and they're exhausted, and they just can't deal with it, and they, they turn to Google. I regret not having kids, but those are the types of thoughts that uh, we don't usually see, uh, certainly in everyday conversation, and even as I talk about every lies in anonymous surveys. So the way we got around people kind of lying as we try to ask people questions anonymously and figuring, okay, well, if nobody knows who's giving this answer, you'll be more likely to be honest. But it turns out, and it's been shown over and over again, that people are deceptive even in anonymous surveys. And they are they don't like saying things that they're not proud of to a stranger on the phone uh, or a stranger there in the same room. But Google, uh, they are more comfortable saying these things in part because Google gives you an incentive to tell the truth. So Gallup or Pew or Quinnipiac... You have no incentive to say, you know, uh, I regret having kids or I'm not having sex in my marriage or these other things. But on Google, you do have an incentive because you can get the information you need.
0: So, so, I mean, I've, I've underlined a ton of stuff that like interesting data, interesting facts that you've uncovered, but let's rewind a bit and talk about how did you, you, you worked at, at, at Google as a data scientist. How'd you get that job? What'd you do there? What did you uncover there?
1: So actually, I was writing New York Times columns of my analyses of Google trends. And then the company reached out to me saying that, uh, you know, you, you might want to work for us since you have such an interest in our data.
0: Everybody reaches out to you. Nobody ever reaches out to me. I write also. <laughs> no one reaches out.
1: I know you're lying about that because I personally reached out to you six years ago to get coffee. Uh, so I, at least some fans do reach out to you.
0: That, that's true. That's true. Uh,
1: and I, I would bet that you're being deceptive there and people do reach out to you. You've certainly done <laughs> some very varied things in your career.
0: Your book is called Everybody Lies, so you're probably skeptical of people's honesty in general.
1: That's true. And I, and I think, interestingly, you may be dishonest in the negative direction. Most people are dishonest in the positive direction, and they say, everybody's reaching out to me, and I'm in huge demand, and I, sus- I suspect not to be your therapist that you may be dishonest in the opposite direction, which I also am, so... If that's true, we have that in common.
0: So Google contact you, you started working there. And what what did you do for them? Did you move out to San Francisco? Or did you work here in New York?
1: Yeah, I was living in the Bay Area. And I was basically doing data analysis. It, totally independent from the work I did in my book. I was doing a lot of like, ad, I was in the on the quantitative marketing team. So it was a lot of analysis of advertising and just kind of basic data science. Uh which I, I, I actually enjoyed. I tend to like everything once I get into it.
0: What does it mean, though, um, on the advertising side? Like, like, it seems like there could be proactive stuff. Like, if you see everybody is Googling stuff about, I don't know, some particular kind of bed, you can inform that bed company, hey, uh, a lot of people are Googling you and get it, and then going to other results. We could help you fine-tune that. Is it proactive like that, or is it it's something else?
1: I wasn't doing that. I was doing more, just like analyzing the effects of AB tests or different projects that weren't really using the search trends as much. I did a li- one project that was using uh, search trends. It was kind of the idea was surveys are small, so you ask a thousand people a question, and you don't necessarily have data for different geographies, but you can kind of combine that data with Google Trends data and say if people, let's let's say you ask like who supports. Uh, Biden. And if people who support Biden uh, tend to be in areas that make a lot of certain Google searches, like search for yoga or search for, you know, vegan recipes, then you can kind of predict Biden support throughout the country, even though you only have a 1000 person survey. So I did a little bit of work on that, which I should be able to talk about because it's public.
0: And was it successful?
1: Uh, Yeah, it worked pretty well.
0: Like people at Google could probably do really well in prediction markets where you get to bet on political outcomes for instance
1: there was actually a story that i'm pretty sure like some google executives at some point came up with an idea we should just be a hedge fund uh but then like i think eric schmidt was like there's no like there's no way that's at all legal so uh but yeah i'm sure if you had access to -to moment-to-moment search data you could uh, predict the stock market and other things
0: you could for instance search if in the area uh where a company is if suddenly there's uh a a uptick in searches, like, what happens when a company fires its CEO, and it's all coming from IBM or whatever, and it's also coming from a law office in New York City that represents IBM, Then you could probably make some predictions.
1: Yeah, and there are just just companies use this data. Like, a lot of times, just seeing how their product's doing, uh, I think politicians have used this data to see whether they have to address a scandal. So if, like, everyone's Googling something, but then... It, like basically, does the story have legs so if if it gets a lot of attention and then people just stop googling it, they'll sometimes say, "Okay, let's just let this be." But if everyone you know all news covers it, and people the Google searches go way up and they stay up, then they say, "Well, now I need to address this
0: yeah, it's interesting so so what 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 were the a b tests that you were analyzing? I'm just trying to build a picture of like your your experience like your your time at Google
1: Oh uh. I don't even remember. It was so long ago. I don't they're just particular it was it it's kind of boring. It's not as exciting as the penis searches, trust me.
0: (laughs) But like is it if they change the search algorithm, are people more likely to click the top results? Is it stuff like that? And you test different search algorithms?
1: I think the highest level does stuff like that. Mine were more like basic questions or analyzing the effects of experiments and just kind of more general analysis, but nothing too crazy.
0: You know, and you mentioned this fascinating story and maybe this got you interested in data originally. You mentioned the story of the guy who bought a horse for like a yeah. million dollars. Jeff Sater. Yeah, Sater. He used a data-driven approach. And I, I might have heard of this guy, actually. Steven Dubner from, from Freakonomics told me about a guy who had essentially almost like a hedge fund betting on horses and he was using a money ball or a data-driven approach. I wonder if this is the same guy. Yeah, it,
1: it probably is. And it may have been because I was on the Freakonomics podcast talking about it. So that may have been what got Stephen to talk about. I'm not sure. But uh, he uh, he this guy, Jeff Sater, he is like a totally brilliant guy. He has three degrees from Harvard University and he was working in banking at uh, Citibank in his 20s. And one day he came home from work. He saw himself in a suit and tie in the mirror and he's just like, this is not me. I'm not meant to be a banker. I'm not meant to wear a suit and tie every day. I'm not meant to live in New York City. So he fled from, uh, with his three Harvard degrees to rural Pennsylvania. And he wanted to be in nature around horses in the woods. And he spent the rest of his life analyzing what makes a great racehorse great. And uh, amazingly, this was before Moneyball, uh, before kind of the, before the term data science existed. Uh, but he was way ahead of the curve. That he wanted to uh, figure out what makes great horse, racehorse great using data, and he tried all these things over the years. He he's like an eccentric dude, and uh, he th- he told me I flew down to Florida because I found his story so fascinating, and I met with him over a weekend. And he was telling me all these things he tried. He's like he measured the size of horse nostrils. Uh, to s- s- he had this theory that horses with big wide nostrils would breathe better, and that would make them uh, run faster. And he created what I think to this day is the largest horse nostril dataset ever assembled. Uh, and he tried that out, like do these horses with big wide nostrils run faster and found out, no, no, they don't. And then he uh, measured the size of their leg muscles, do horses with big wide leg muscles run better, makes makes a lot of sense, didn't turn out to predict success. And uh, he tried one time, he tried to measure the size of horse poop, the size of their defecations. He literally set, uh, stood outside the barn and was measuring the size, like the diameter of horse poop and said, do horses with big wide poop uh, run faster? And he found out that no, it doesn't work. And he tried all these things, a horrible failure. I'm pretty sure his wife was on the verge of leaving him. He was probably close to bankruptcy. And then he came up with the idea to, he worked with uh, a professor at the university of Pennsylvania. He built the world's uh, first EKG to measure the size of internal organs of horses including the size of different ventricles of their heart, including the size of their left ventricle. And he put this in the data set he had built, and he found that horses with big left ventricles just run faster than everybody else. Uh, and that's why he made the prediction that American Pharaoh would be a once-in-a-generation horse, uh, because American Pharaoh had a 99.6 first percentile left ventricle, and nobody else except for Jeff Sader knew that he had this left ventricle or knew that left ventricle was so predictive of success. Uh, so so it's an amazing story.
0: How did he get the data about that specific horse meaning like let's say he's going to an auction and there's 20 horses for sale would he make them all go through like an M- an EKG or
1: I think he just has to like rub it near their heart outside the barn. I'm not exactly sure but I think uh it was it, I think it was a small device that allowed for it. I'm not totally sure. But it was it was amazing cuz he showed me the card and it was just like wow, American Pharaoh Based on his model, just had to be an incredible horse, and then and nobody else thought that when American Pharaoh was one year old. Like basically, the way every other uh, horse analyst uh, predicts horse racing success is using pedigree, and American Pharaoh's pedigree was just basically average. So everyone's like, "Yeah, this horse is fine, nothing special." And Jeff Sader just had this model as like, "No, this is like going to be a once in a generation horse," and then it was a once in a generation horse. And the first to yeah, win won the, the Triple, triple cr- Crown, crown the in 37 after. years. And then, and then another horse, I think it was Justify, won the Triple Crown again. And I emailed Jeff. I'm like, tell me, did he have a big left ventricle? And he's like, yeah, it was enormous as well. So yeah, it's it's really cool.
0: And so how much money do you think he made? How much money did he make on that one horse?
1: I don't know exactly because he always, he's, he's also not, he, he's, I think he's less into it uh, than for money than, other people. He said that on some podcasts he's been on. And I think it's basically true. Like I hung out with him and he was just obsessed with trying to figure out uh, horse racing success more than business as far as I could tell. But he didn't tell me uh, how much he he made. It was was basically, he sells his service as consultants to horse owners. Uh, And what he did is he had a client who was trying to sell American Pharaoh. And he told the client, don't sell this horse, sell your house. Like, there is no way you can sell this horse. He, he is too good. So he saved the client a, you know, a, from a huge mistake. Uh, and I don't know how much the client paid him. If he got a bonus out of it, I'm not exactly sure.
0: Yeah, because that that horse probably went on to a big career in being a stud as well. So he's probably made tens of millions of dollars.
1: Yeah, that's where most of the money in horse racing is.
0: Yeah. So when I hear stuff like this, I always think to myself that, okay, is, is a data-driven approach to this kind of analysis where you could have real world, you know, positive outcomes including making money, I feel like is it too late because every domain has been conquered. Like, you know, Mo- moneyball did it for baseball. I actually, know a guy who's doing it for football and doing very well. I'm just wondering what domains, you know, you feel are like unexplored for this.
1: I think it's definitely not too late in part because after wrote everybody lies, I started some companies reached out to me. Uh and they asked me to help them consult. And like 90% of the companies, I'm not exaggerating, initially apologize. They're like, our data science is so pathetic. Like, we know you're expecting a lot more and we just have a lot less than you suspect. And when every company is saying that, I think, like, I'm like, you're you're doing nothing wrong. You're just like, there's it, that just says that there's still a way to be way ahead of the curve. I think there are some fields, if you're competing with, uh, if you're going to try to, create a new search engine or a new social network i think you're going to have trouble uh competing on the data science front with google or facebook but if you're in any industry uh most in you know wall street i think is another area where uh the best data scientists do work there and you might have a you might have a tough time uh, having a huge edge uh baseball is maybe one area where you might struggle to find an edge except Every few years, a new book comes out about how a different team used data analytics to become great. So first, it was Moneyball covered the story of the Oakland A's. And then there was a book about the Tampa about the Houston Astros. I think it was Astro Ball. And then there was a book about the Tampa Bay Rays, how they use data analysis to uh, kind of beat the system. So even baseball, which is uh, maybe the quintessential example of a field where the secrets of the advantage of data science have spread widely there seem to be ways to uh, still have an edge using better data science or uh, advancing and i think the other thing the jeff Sader story tells me is that frequently the way to have an edge in data science is not by having better models than everybody else or just thinking to use data science everybody can do that in many ways every horse uh consultant was a data scientist they just looked through the same books that everybody looked through and ranked the and saw how good the pedigree of the horses were, and then consulted their clients uh, based on that information. But what Jeff Sater did is he was entrepreneurial. He actually went out and got new data that nobody else had. So he you know measured the size of their horse nostrils, and he measured the size of their poop and the size of their legs, and he built the EKG and he did all these things. And that entrepreneur, being entrepreneurial, doing annoying things that nobody else wants to do. I think you can always have an edge basically indefinitely in life because uh every everybody, most people are drawn to the lazy approach to just using the same data sources that everybody else is using. Uh so if you're willing to put energy into collecting new data, uh I think you you, you could have an edge in just about any field.
0: It's really interesting because there's two things happening. One is how unique and different is your model from all the miles pri- prior Now that doesn't mean your model is going to work, but it's a combination of that using a unique model to uncover something that is very common <laughs> because you're, what you're trying to uncover, let's say, is the best horse, but you want to go about it in a way that no one's ever gone about it before because that will be the arbitrage in, in price ultimately, or the arbitrage in whatever it is you're, you're transacting. So, so it's uniqueness combined with commonness. You, you, you're using the unique to find the common.
1: Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense.
0: And 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 it's interesting because you know the book's titled everybody lies, but it's really and you, and you you mentioned this in the book it's it's not so much about lying it's sort of about everybody's what you're doing is using this data that is always out there to find the industry's secrets. Yeah. So like for instance what you were just saying about relationships or what you were saying about India even doctors and you know therapists probably didn't know this was a big thing in India, you know, Indian doctors and Indian therapists. And yet it's something a billion people, you know, give or take search on, on Google. So it's like a big, this big, massive secret that no one talks about. They feel comfortable talking to Google about it because they, they, because like you say, they have an incentive to, to learn more.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing with data science is you have to be willing to be surprised by the data. So like, I think a mistake that a lot of data scientists have is, I think one of the reasons Jeff Seder was so successful is he was, I think by his own admission, a little eccentric and maybe I think a partner of his who I met, Patty, Patty Murray just said, he's crazy. And I think that can be an advantage in data science because most people, like most people just test what everybody else has already been using. So you just look at the pedigree, uh, you look at the times they, they ran. Most people aren't like, you know, could poop size correlate with success? Nobody thinks that. And then, if you do think that, a lot of times you're wrong, but occasionally you're going to be right. And you know, I kind of did this. I talk on the book. I studied this site, Stormfront, uh, which is the largest hate site in the United States. And actually, the way I the way I came up with the, the idea to study Stormfront is I was googling myself uh, because I'd written an article and I got excited because this message board was talking about me. They're like, Seth Stevens Davids wrote this article. I had written an article about racism or something. I'm like, I, you know, like I get excited. I'm like, oh, wow, I'm in the news, whatever. And then I look at the site and it's like it Seth like Jew. Jew. <laughs> Jew. Yeah, I was like, Jew, Seth Stevens-Mutowicz. And like, you know, analyzing my face and how Jewish I look. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, God, what the hell is this site? This isn't so cool. And then I just found out that it was the biggest hate site in the, at the United States. And I was shocked that the biggest hate site in the United States was uh, when, when you look at the actual message boards, was predominantly focused on Jewish people. I'm just like, what the hell? Like, that's not, like, I grew up with kind of an idea that anti-Semitism was uh, deeply in the past in America. And I grew up in a you know town that was 40% Korean, 40% Jewish. Like, I don't think there was much anti-Semitism that I detected. And I went to universities that were all very Jewish and with, uh, as far as I could tell, zero anti-Semitism. So I wrote this article about Stormfront, and I just found out like recently that I wrote this article, and my dad told my mom that Seth has gone crazy. She's like, he's like, Seth has lost his mind. He's down into conspiracy theories. Like, like, what the hell is he talking about? That there's some, you know, anti-Semitism, anti-Semites congregating on the internet in the United States. Like, he's lost his mind. And my neither my dad nor my mom told me that they had that hypothesis. And then the Charlottesville protest happened uh, where there were all these people chanting anti-Semitic things. And my dad goes to my mom, I guess Seth was right. (laughs) Uh, And I think what I take from that story is you have to be willing to let the data take you to places that seem crazy to other people and just stick with the data and say, I don't care what anybody says. I am seeing, you know, not... the data is not telling me that 10% or 20% are visiting this site, but the data is telling me a lot of people are visiting a site that is predominantly focused on how on theories of how Jewish people are running society. And my dad can think I'm crazy. My mom can think I'm crazy, but I'm going to put that data out there into the world. And more, more times than not, you know, the, the, the world catches up to the data and it gets revealed in some other way. Uh, maybe we're going to find the breastfeeding thing some other way, and I can tell people I told you uh, that Indian that you know Indian men have this fetish. Not not all Indian men, but more than other places.
0: What were some other things that that kind of surprised you? That again, again, it's not that everybody lies. It's not like that Indian men lie. It's this. It, it it's a secret. It's. It, it, I'm really more fascinated by the term secret. Like that s- society as a whole keeps. All of these deep secrets, like like whether it's anti-Semitism or some fetish or whatever, and we're not really aware of it because we don't really know what anybody else is thinking, because they might be so secretive that you don't want to talk about these things. It's like what other thing? But but Google knows it
1: all. Google knows it all, and other sites know it also. I I also in the in the book analyze data from Pornhub and speak about a site that knows a lot about people that people aren't gonna normally talk about. You know, that's an area, you know, where, where there's a lot of stuff that's surprising or not talked about. I was struck in the data. There, there was, were more searches than I was expecting and more views in pornography sites for overweight people than I would have guessed. And I think that was really interesting because there's also data from dating sites, which suggests very clearly that people try very hard to date people who are skinny, that being overweight is a huge negative in dating. And that made me think that there's a sense in which being in the closet is more widespread than we sometimes think. So the traditional definition of being in the closet is a home a, a gay person who pretends that he or she is straight. So the person is attracted to members of the same sex, but due to social pressures, they pretend that they're interested, uh, a, a desire to conform or a desire to make other people think highly of them. They date members of the opposite sex. And I suspect that that phenomenon is more common than just gender, that a lot of people try hard to date people because they'll impress their friends or they think other people will think they're cool or other people will think they're normal rather than what they're really interested in. Because the data from pornography uh, shows that the what people are most deeply attracted to varies much more than is usually talked about. Uh, but what people look for in dating, it doesn't always vary so much. Uh, so th- I do suspect that there are, for example, men who are, are, would be, are more attracted to overweight women and would be happier and more fulfilled if they date an overweight woman. But because they are embarrassed about that attraction or think other people will judge them negatively, uh, try to date skinnier women instead.
0: What do you think it is about, in this case, overweight women that, and I could I could understand the reasoning why, but I'm curious your uh, uh, interpretation. Why why do you think that is? So on the dating side, I understand they're trying to impress their friends, but in the in the fulfillment side, why would a weight de- determine a hi- higher degree of fulfillment?
1: Why are people attracted to people of certain types? What causes those attractions?
0: Or in this particular case, why do you think uh, being in a relationship with an overweight woman might be more fulfilling, whether it's sexual or just the relationship in general?
1: Oh, no, because I think some people, the range of what people are attracted to varies quite a bit. And that for some some people, for whatever reason, are more attracted to overweight people. Some people are attracted to brunettes, redheads, blondes, uh, bald people, people with full heads of hair, tall people, short people. There's a pretty ra- wide range of what people are attracted to. Uh, I think a, a big question that this data will ultimately help us answer is what causes such attractions? So why are some people attracted to types of people? There's some evidence that people get imprinted from a very young age, from the people they see around them or the people they have a first uh, romantic experience with and tend to be attracted to that same type the rest of their lives. Uh, They've actually done studies with, uh, I think, uh, ducks, where they paint like the mother's beak red and then for the rest of their lives, the, the kids of that uh, mother with the beak with, that was painted red uh, seek out partners who have red beaks, uh, which suggested that some attraction, at least for an, for many animals, comes from certain key moments in, in childhood. So, But that's an area well beyond uh, my expertise, although that usually doesn't stop me from opining about topics.
0: I kind of feel, and, and data sort of shows this, there is no such thing as expertise. That, that's a lot of what you're telling me. Like, te- Take the, the Jeff Sater's example with horses. Most people buy on pedigree and the experts will analyze pedigree and they're experts on pedigree and they'll tell you what horse to buy based on pedigree. And it turns out they forgot to check the left ventricle. <laughs> so they weren't really experts at all compared to Jeff Sater.
1: I think that's right, although that can be taken too far. Uh, there have been studies on like what on successful entrepreneurs where they've looked at the entire record of entrepreneurs in the, uh, United States. And there is, there has, there is an argument that outsiders have an edge in entrepreneurship. David Epstein's book, which is excellent range has a whole chapter, the outsider's yeah. edge that you have an edge. If you come from kind of a a field, a, a different field, because if you're in a, so stuck in a field, uh, you're going to be, uh, so constrained by what everybody else is do- doing, you're not able to see kind of new solutions. But if you actually look at the data of every business created, there's a huge insider's edge that the closer you are to even the sub specialty you're starting a business in, the more likely you are to be successful. Uh, so I think some of what happens is the non-experts who succeed, we get so excited by their stories and they're so uh almost because they're counterintuitive and they stick out. Uh, We love telling the stories and then uh, we kind of lose track of the fact that it still is the exception. So it's not like you can't be an outsider and revolutionize your field. Uh, Jeff Sater has shown that there have been many entrepreneurs who have created successful products in in an area they knew nothing about, but it's still the exception uh, rather than the rule. Uh, The other example that in business is age of entrepreneurs – so there's this idea that that youth is an advantage in business, and we hear all these stories. There was a movie, The Social Network, a Hollywood blockbuster about Mark Zuckerberg starting Facebook when he's 19 years old, and people started thinking, "Oh, it's you know, you can start a great business in your dorm room, or you can start, uh, you know, a great business shortly after college, or in your late 20s." And if you look at the data, not the stories or the movies. Uh, the most successful founders of businesses tend to be in their mid forties. And your odds of creating a successful business increase up until the age of 60. Uh, And the average business owner, the average successful entrepreneur who is not uh, turned into a Hollywood uh, who, who for whom there is not a Hollywood movie made uh, is someone who learned a lot about their field over many, many years, excelled in that field And then went off to start something on their own in middle age, or even sometimes later.
0: I completely believe that. Like just anecdotally, my own experience, whenever I've started a business because I thought, oh, this is the next hot thing, it's always failed. But if I started something where it was an area that I had been doing first for fun, then for years for little money, and then became an entrepreneur, those would tend to be more successful.
1: Yeah, there, like, I in the data there is like something close to a formula for entrepreneurial success when you look at the data because the odds of success are so much higher if you did something in that field, showed success in that field, were already making a good income in that field, and then went out of, on your own when you had a lot of experience in that field. Like the chances of success are just monumentally higher. That doesn't mean that you can't uh, start a successful business in your dorm room or uh, you know, I, I, there, there are people. Susie Baptiste is one of the richest women in the United States. Uh she created a product poo which uh lower which gets rid of the smell in defecations. Uh you pour it into your toilet bowl and you get rid of this smell in defecations. She had no training in the field. She wasn't a chemist, she wasn't uh you know a, a scientist, she wasn't anything. She just kind of had this Eureka moment and did it. And it happens. It's not like uh it's not like it's impossible, but I think people hear those stories and they get and, and they uh and they and they think that that's likely to happen, uh, whereas it's it's not. There's clearly mathematical mathematical evidence and data that shows that uh, your odds of success are just way higher uh, if you've previously uh, if you have experience and success in a field over a long period of time. Well, you
0: know, as someone who is aging, this is. I mean, everybody's aging, but as someone who's getting older. You know, I'm older than I was when I started a lot of companies and this is encouraging news. What, what other age related things surprised you? Like, you know, people always say, uh, mathematicians do their best work in their twenties, but I'm not sure this is true either. I read one study where, uh, uh, if you judge success in mathematics by how many other papers reference a paper you wrote, it turns out older mathematicians have more successful
1: academic research published. Yeah, and part of the youthful advantage in some of these fields is because young people just write more papers, partly because older people are busy on committees and and things like that. Uh, So quantity adjusted, uh, as a percent of papers written, there even tends to be more of an advantage towards older people, but some older people just aren't as driven and don't put as much work out there. there are some advantages to youth, definitely. Uh, in art, uh, Professor Galenson at University of Chicago has basically found that there are two types of artists. And uh, one, uh, one type of artist just blows on, on the scene at a very young age. Uh, and that, an example of that is someone like Bob Dylan, who I think most people agree, even Dylan himself said that his best work was done in his 20s. Uh, but there are other artists who are more experimentalists and tinkerers, and those artists tend to get better with age. So an example of that would be Leonard Cohen, who uh, wrote his best work mm. probably in his 50s. Uh, so it, there can be advantages mm. to youth that some people, they're, they're, your brain you know, does have more uh, horsepower at younger ages. So for poets, mathematicians, there definitely can be advantages that some people take advantage of, uh, to do great work at a young age, but uh, some of the some of the advantage of youth is a myth in many in many domains. Certainly in entrepreneurship, and the other thing about the study of entrepreneurism age is it's true even in the field of tech. So you'd say, okay, I'd I understand how that would be true in some really boring business, uh, but tech is such a fast moving field uh, with all this new technology. You'd think in that field, you know, you need to be uh, really young to understand the newest. Trends, but uh, even in tech, the most successful entrepreneurs tend to be in their 40s.
0: It's so interesting because uh, that does go against a lot of. Uh, basically, you're you're busting mythologies with with data, which is kind of the the story of history. Like the the story of history is basically new religions and new belief systems completely developing because new data shows the old belief system didn't work. So, like Christianity, for instance, had to evolve. As, as we learn more about the shape
1: of the universe. I was reading recently, there was some study, people had all these ideas that, like cert- superstitions around age, that there are certain years that just people die a lot. And then someone collected all this data and found that that wasn't true, that your chances of dying, you know, were, there were no jumps at any particular age. And that really did change things about how people viewed. Uh, it, di- it did, the data actually worked in kind of getting rid of those myths. And- a similar, recently there have been papers uh, analyzing uh, birth, t- time of birth, and basically horoscopes. So do you see personality differences uh, for people born, uh, you know, for Virgos or Tauruses or whatever the, hor- I don't even know all, anything about horoscopes, but uh, do you see these patterns? And not surprising to me, there were no relationships, there's no difference. Uh, you know, these, these things are all myths, the idea that People born on particular months or particular dates are going to take on certain personalities is not true at all. And we'll see if that... I wouldn't be shocked if that does uh, lead to fewer people uh, following horoscopes, believing in this astrology.
0: This always assumes that people read academic papers, which they don't. Well... (laughs) Like no one cares actually about facts.
1: Well, it's not, but then you have popular science writers. So now I'm, I'm kind of moving into the arena of popular science. And now I'm spending a lot of my day uh, reading a lot of academic journals and being like, and trying to get these ideas out there and making them entertaining for people and going on podcasts and talking about them. And, you know, I, I, I'm actually surprised by how much c- credence people give to data. And people are willing to change their mind more than I s- expect when you show them a compelling data point, uh, in that direction, I I don't kind of agree. There's a notion that everyone's so stuck in their ways that, uh, they just ignore facts and it hasn't been true in my experience. You
0: know, it, it's interesting that, you know, you mentioned earlier that, um, you, Oh, you were talking about penis size, that it fit a normal distribution. So, uh, you know, normal distribution is, uh, how would you describe it to somebody? It's like how our tests were graded when we were kids. It's, you know the idea that there's an average and if you're if you if you could beat the average person at something two out of three times then you're one standard deviation away if it's like i don't know four and a half out of five times you're two standard deviations away and so on but then you have people like Nassim Taleb who believe that most domains could be better modeled by some sort of power law distribution like the way earthquakes are modeled and uh, you, you know, so so financial markets, for instance, are normal until they aren't is kind of the the expression. Like you could use a normal distribution model of the stock market to make money year in and year, you know, year after year after year, and then suddenly you'll lose all your money because of this black swan event. And so there is a risk to data.
1: Yeah, so that's, so Nassim Tlaib, uh, kind of popularizing some ideas by Benoit Mendelbrot, uh, says that, a lot of financial markets are run by power laws, where a normal distribution uh, there's an average, and most of the people will be very close to the average. Uh, you know, as you get further and further from the average, you get fewer and fewer people uh, there, and to the point that if you're talking about three standard deviations out from the mean, uh, they're very very few, and then five, six, seven, eight standard deviations, they're just like nobody. And power laws are a little different, where even way out numbers, way out, there's they still uh, happen. So wealth is an example of this, where if wealth was a normal distribution, you'd have everybody, you know, we'd have you'd have the average, uh, let's say, uh, uh, you know, the average wealth in the United States, which let's, I'd have to look up what it is, but $121,000 is the median wealth in the United States, uh, $121,000 median wealth, and then you'd have m- most people right near $121,000, and you'd have, you know, only very few people you know, above 300,000 and then you'd have you know nobody above 10 million, 20 million, let alone a uh, hundred billion. And cl- what, what we know is that wealth doesn't work that way at all, that uh, it's, it's a power distribution and uh, some pe- you can have people very, very far from uh, the mean. You know I think that's I don't think that that argument goes against data science. It just shows you have to correctly analyze the data and know whether you're dealing with a normal distribution or a power law. And there are actually there are usually ways you can figure out whether you're going to deal with power law. Power law laws tend to come from anything with kind of multiplicative effects where some initial edge is going to lead to even more edge. So that certainly happens in wealth, where if you get, you know, some people start using your product, you get some capital, you can build on that and do do and uh ha- and uh build even more wealth. It happens in city size. So city size is also a power law, zip's law, it's a a power law distribution. And if you are if your city is popular, more people are gonna move there and it's gonna feed on itself and lead, and the, the biggest city is going to be far bigger than we'd expect if city size was a normal distribution. But some things like IQ, uh height uh don't have that phenomenon where they're they're just the so the best of our knowledge they're kind of additive effects of various of a whole bunch of genes and having one of those genes doesn't make you more likely to have another of those genes so there's nothing that's leading to uh, these power law effects.
0: yeah, that's interesting and then you could say, okay, in you know a normal distribution like if you want to predict stocks for instance, most of the time probably a normal uh, a normal distribution of price movement works but there are situations where, Everybody is either buying or everybody is selling. There's like there's too much panic or too much greed, and then it kind of flips over into a power uh, power law distribution. Uh, yeah, like on a normal day, like like right like like last month, people were a little too panicked, and so anything can kind of happen. But on a normal day, where eh, maybe the market's gonna go up, maybe it's gonna go down, nobody really knows. Nobody then a normal distribution tends to work better.
1: Yeah, and that's actually another example of I would say that's another example of using data to uh, do better in a field and even become rich, where right? I would say that Nassim Talib's success came from uh, reading the work of Mendelbrot, who he says he was a big fan of, that first said that uh, stock prices didn't follow a normal distribution, basically looking at data, collecting a huge data set of stock prices and commodity prices and saying that they fell by power laws and realizing that uh talib, reali- talib from that data realized that uh, extreme events were underpriced in the market and there was a disk there was an inefficiency uh and you could make money by betting on extreme events uh because the pro- the probabilities of those events were priced as if the data fit a normal distribution uh, whereas actually they fit uh a power law
0: well it's it's interesting because and and you refer to this in the book you know, uh, so, something that Peter Thiel said that a good business is all about what I, I forget the exact quote but a good bu- good business is about uh, what secrets you're unveiling and that's the key to making a great business and it's because there's it's because somewhere there's this arbitrage between how people value something based on what they expect that something to be and, and there's a difference between expectations and reality and so. Like if you were starting a business, how would you use that concept? That Peter Thiel's concept that a business is all about what what secrets you're 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 sharing. How would you use that to start a business?
1: Yeah, I think the examples we talked about have been have have fit that that model. So Jeff Sater had a secret about horses that the left ventricle turns out to be really predictive. Uh, Nassim Taleb had a secret about the market that uh, it's more power distribution than people realize. Uh, Zuckerberg had a secret about people that they're more nosy than they let on, uh, as I talk about in Everybody Lies. And I think the key to using secrets to start a business is you don't always have to be the first one to have noticed this or the only one who knows it. It still can be, a, a as long as it's not common knowledge or hasn't been, you know, uh, Talib's insight that the uh, market had more black swans uh, then people realized that they were priced in. Again, was not an original Talib idea. It was, uh, as far as I can tell, first uh, found discovered by uh, Mendelbrot. But uh, it wasn't properly priced into the market. Similarly, with the A's and how they revolutionized baseball, they initially weren't doing anything uh, proprietary. They were basically implementing ideas from Bill James, which had been around for decades. So Bill James for decades was writing books about how baseball was, how the how data shows that baseball teams are run all wrong and that uh, bunting doesn't make sense. Stealing doesn't make sense. Walks are undervalued. And baseball teams just ignored this. And then Billy Bean said, I'm going to use this. You could call it a secret. It's not that nobody knew it, but it was a secret in the sense that it wasn't being paid attention to by other baseball organizations and being said I'm going to use this secret to uh build a better team and it basically largely worked.
0: Yeah, or or take this woman who made the the poopery, the thing that makes defecations not not smell. Uh what what would you say is I mean, it's not really a secret that people don't want to smell that. Or that they're or maybe maybe or maybe the secret was is that you you could make it not smell. Like I didn't know you could just pour something in the toilet that could make it not smell.
1: I think, she, from what I understood, she I did know. a bunch. She did a bunch of experiments and largely got lucky. And that happens too, which is why I say that that is not a story you want to build your life around because it's not a scalable model to just, yeah. uh, you know, like a lot of things in in life have been serendipity uh and you know you 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 maybe want to put yourself in situations where serendipity becomes more likely uh but you don't want to assume that serendipity is going to happen or assume that's a you know, uh, assume that that's a great path to life success
0: but but you use the same word when describing her and Jeff Sader which is that they both did lots of experiments so the good the thing about data modeling is that you could have a theory and then you collect the data and you test if the theory is is right based on the data and you're going to be wrong a lot of the time. The data will tell you whether you're right or wrong. And the theory is just a theory, but the data will tell you the the truth. And so maybe a key is always be willing to be persistent about these experiments with data.
1: I think that's right. And you got to be willing to fail a lot on your way to a victory. Uh, yeah, and then I guess the other thing is when you have that victory, you go all in. Uh, so a lot of people, if I had, played around with various chemicals and thought that I found one that uh did that got rid of the the smell of feces, I probably would have convinced myself that was insane and gone back to writing books. Uh but uh I, I guess having the chutzpah to say that I figured something out that is can can lead to hundreds of millions of dollars uh can be can be good. I mean I have so much stuff uh outline i don't even know where to go
0: but uh oh you know what was interesting was the data about stories that you know people had modeled like i guess hundreds of stories and you know sort of showed that each one had you know every successful let's say novel or play or movie or whatever had a very specific kind of arc and it it was roughly like the arc of the hero but there were like more components to it like what 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 interesting uh thing did you derive from that
1: yeah, it was well, I was using something called sentiment analysis. So that's a tool that data scientists use where certain words are positive words. So happy, good, uh, certain words are negative uh, words such as sad or bad. And you, you analyze the positive words, negative words, and you see that the sentiment of uh, successful plays, movies, stories tend to follow certain paths. There, there isn't one path, there are a whole bunch of them, but there are, there are, you, the data scientist has discovered about six of them uh, which is pretty cool. And if you're trying to write a story, I definitely co- read that work and try to see if you fit them. If you fit one of those models, uh, because if you don't, it seems like
0: they, they differentiated from stories that weren't successful.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, uh, and, and yeah, if if you don't have that pattern, you're less likely to be among the the more successful, uh, stories. So, uh, it it's interesting also because I think sometimes data sharpens the picture in that. Like there have been definitely Hollywood that I've read many books over the years of people from Hollywood talking about what makes a great story. And some of the patterns uncovered in data science were hypothesized, but I don't think anybody had found these are the six, uh, exactly the six, uh, you know, types of successful stories. uh, And that type of clear, sharp picture uh, you frequently can only get in a convincing way uh, if you analyze uh, lots and lots of data.
0: Again, what other what other area did, that you researched in the book or afterwards did you suddenly realize? Oh my gosh, this is this is this big secret! I never could have imagined this.
1: Uh, let's see there. Are... Oh, uh, this is one for my upcoming book. Don't trust your gut. Uh, <laughs> They these scholars, they analyzed tax data, digitized tax data, uh, and basically studied every rich person in the United States. They have this sentence in their paper. I couldn't believe it didn't get more attention. They go, the typical rich American is the owner of a regional business, such as an auto dealership or beverage distribution company. And I just read that. I'm like, what the heck? Like, that was not who I thought of as the typical rich American in the United States. And so I, I read the paper closer, and then I also did some of my own data analysis based on some of their com- – comparing their charts to some other sources. And you kind of see that, like, the, like who, who gets rich in the United States? Well, it's mostly people who own, who don't rent, uh, who don't rent their time, who don't have wages. So it's, there's ratio about three to one in the, in the, among top, the richest Americans in owners versus uh, wage earners, which I kind of figured out over the years, but I definitely did not know that when I was 20 or 25. Uh, And then it seems like there are certain industries that are just really, really good at creating rich owners. So auto dealerships is one of them. Uh, Beverage distribution, some other middlemen. Uh, Investing in real estate, that's kind of well-known. Market research. And it seems like what these uh, companies, what these industries allow is a lot of local monopolies. So uh, auto dealerships are regulated local monopolies uh, where you only can start, there, if you have a the auto, if you're the auto dealer for a car company in a region, basically you're you're protected by law from competitors, which is a very good place to be uh, as a business. Uh, and but other companies kind of have the uh, have these flavor as well. Uh, so market research is a very scalable business. So you can kind of write up your reports uh, on your very niche interest and then sell it to a whole bunch of of people. And it's hard for someone else to have that same, the same contacts that you've built in your industry uh, to compete with you, to just totally take away your prices. Uh, beverage distribution is a regulated industry also helps. Uh, investing in real estate, uh, kind of uh, hard for one firm to totally dominate because each, invest in, each investor, kind of has, many different investors have their own strategies and are able to differentiate or claim they're differentiating in ways that allow them to, to make money.
0: Also, there's a hundred million homes out there. So yeah, you know, but it's hard for one person to have a hundred million homes.
1: It's true, but there are a hundred million homes who need painting and paint companies mm. that are painters aren't doing creating a lot of millionaires uh, because they just people just ruthlessly compete on price on those in many of these industries. So there are only certain companies that allow you to kind of avoid for whatever reason, this ruthless price competition uh, that destroys a lot of businesses. Uh, and uh, so so the, co- the combination of that you need to be in a business, you have to somehow kind of build some sort of moat, uh, either with the help of law or the help of scaling or the help of industry contacts. Uh, somehow you got to prevent just being like, you know, a lot of these industries that aren't creating millionaires where people start businesses, people just search on Google and pick the cheapest one. Uh, and you're just destroyed. Uh, you know, all your all your money goes to advertise competing to be higher on Google's advertising, uh, uh, you know, to, to be high, higher ranked in Google ads. Uh, so, so the, you know, it, it, it basically, the, the thing I took from, uh, this, the data is business is where the money is, but it's particular businesses. Uh, and the other thing in the data, which I kind of also learned over the years, but was really striking is like sexy businesses just freaking suck. So like the quickest yeah. business to the quickest, uh, Field, the field with the shortest average lifespan is record stores. The average record store is out of business in 2.5 years. Uh, and other businesses that are right near the the top of the list of worst businesses, the shortest lifespans are toy stores, clothing stores, makeup stores, game stores. Uh, and, you know, that kind of goes to the Susie Batisse lesson, which is if something's kind of seems kind of cool and exciting uh, and makes for a great story, uh, people jump on it uh, and too many people jump on it and it's actually a horrible uh, career decision so you don't you you yeah. you, you don't no, want to I... learn from richard branson's success in record companies like that was a one off thing don't read his biography and try to pick up lessons like just look at the data and know that the average record store i mean nobody goes to record stores anymore so that's part of it but same with you know all these sexy sto- store uh sexy companies uh, they're just awful businesses.
0: No, I, I agree. Like uh, somebody once told me that the uglier the business, the more likely you have a chance of succeeding. And so this guy specifically, he was in the business of collecting trash and then finding the, he would filter out the metal that was in the trash and he would melt it down and sell. It's called slag. He would sell this slag to, you know, as a commodity a, a metal commodity. And it was just an ugly business. He was basically this enormous trash collector, but he'd make money on, you know, he had a process for weeding out the metal and, and selling it, like the aluminum and selling it.
1: Yeah, but I think ugly is a necessary but not sufficient condition because you can just be stuck in ruthless competition. Even a lot of u- ugly businesses like Bug Exterminator, nobody wants to do that, but I think the data is pretty clear that people aren't getting rich doing that uh, because they're just in ruthless price competition. So it's not, it's not just as simple as pick something boring and you're, you're good to go. You really got to always be thinking of how can you have your little moat around competitors so you're not just stuck in horrible price competition.
0: Right, and, and scalability is important too. Like pick exterminators might not be able to scale.
1: Yeah, exactly. Although like scalability is another thing where it can be a little overdone, where if it's too scalable, it also becomes a dangerous business for an individual. It's a good business if you're an investor, But like if you start a social media company is incredibly scalable, but it's so scalable that we end up with like a few social media companies and that's it. Uh, Which is also not necessarily a great place to be from an individual entrepreneur's perspective, because your life becomes almost too much of a lottery and it's better to be more to, uh, and it's great if you're an investor and you can make a thousand investments and just pick all the social media companies and just say, I'll, I'll get, I'll end up with whichever one wins this uh, scales correctly. But an individual, I think you want like, I, I always say local monopolies are good. You want scale, but not too much scale uh, is is a good place to be because then you can avoid price competition, but you can also avoid this winner takes all phenomenon uh, where you're just like, where, uh, you know, there, there's been a few sneaker companies that win, a few social media companies that win. Uh, and I think as an individual, uh, that's a dangerous, that's a dangerous life path. It, it may work, but uh, that's kind of one of those things where you get, if the, if Uh, The universe plays itself a thousand times, you get rich in three of them. I think it's better to try to make life decisions where if the universe plays itself a thousand times, you get rich in 500 of them, 600 of them, 700 of them.
0: Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise, dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed in today's environment. The need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington learning center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry to learn more. Visit Huntingtonfranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit Huntingtonfranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. Hims, H-I-M-S, Hims is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims.com/james. Can you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it. Hims.com/james. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs Hims. That's Hims.com/james for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com/james. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hims.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Tell me about the next book. You said you're working on another book, and we talked earlier about it. It's kind of like using data to sort of, you know, improve your
1: life. Yeah, it's called "Don't Trust Your Gut."
0: Don't trust your gut, and it's gonna and it's coming out in May. We're, we're yeah. and we'll have another podcast about it, but let's talk about, uh, just a tiny bit about it now. Like, what are some of the things you'll be sharing in that book?
1: Yeah, so I basically just read. Uh, I, I kind of retired myself from my Google Search Analytics and read every academic study I could find on big life decisions and what does the data tell us and present that as trying to to help people uh, make better life decisions. The motive, one of the motivations with this is I'm a a huge baseball fan. We talked about Moneyball and I kind of realized that baseball has changed so much uh, since due to the Moneyball revolution. So when I was a kid, the game of baseball looked different. Like the infielders all stood in the same spot on every play. And now every play, the infielders are all over the place. There's something called the infield shift, which data scientists discovered uh, was actually a better way. It looks insane, but you put most of the infielders on one side of the field, it actually uh, leads to better outcomes. Uh, And I was thinking about like our personal lives and I feel like most of us don't really use data-driven, make data-driven decisions. We generally do what feels about right uh, and go with our gut. So kind of what would... uh, uh, data what, what would a data driven uh life be like and i think the area where this the clearest and the money ball analogy extends best is dating uh so they, there have been studies there's uh work by Samantha Joel where she studied 11,000 romantic couples and she had every she worked with 85 other scientists she had every possible trait you could measure on them uh their sexual tastes, their demographics their values uh their physical appearance as ranked by other people uh, and she and how happy they reported being in that relationship and she and the other scientists use machine learning to try to find what is it about a person that predicts you're going to be happy in a relationship with them and the overarching lesson is that it's incredibly hard to predict who makes someone happy like it's shockingly unpredictable. You would think that like many qualities about a person uh, would dramatically improve the odds they make you happy, and it seems in the data, it's it's there are some things that moderately improve the the odds, but they're not that big. And the the striking thing about that study is you contrast that with scholars have studied online dating, and they've mined through you know everybody's clicks and messages. And they say, okay, what makes someone desirable in online dating? And that is incredibly easy to predict. So it's it may, it may be hard to predict who's a good romantic partner, but it is so easy to predict who's desirable partner. In fact, they can even predict with high accuracy, not just whether you're going to swipe left or right, but how long it's going to take you to swipe left or right. Because wow. if, if someone's close to your barometer, uh, it's going to take you a little bit longer to make that decision. So, like, we're just lemmings on these online sites. And what predicts uh, someone's more likely to be clicked? It's they're beautiful, not surprisingly. That's by far the biggest predictor. It explains uh, conventionally attractive people, uh, way more desirable. Tall men, uh, each inch of height, they, scholars have found, uh, is worth about. Uh, 40, you have to make about $40,000 of income as a man to overcome like one inch being one inch shorter. Uh, oh certain occupations, not in women, in men. Uh, lawyers, people in the military uh, do way better in online dating. Students do horribly. I spent most of my life as a student and did horribly in dating. And now I know the reason for that. Uh, people work in transportation, uh, in hospitality, disaster for men on dating sites. Uh, similarity to oneself. Uh, people are drawn there's there's this idea that people are drawn to opposites. It's totally not true on just about every dimension scholars can measure. People are drawn to people who are similar themselves even on sil- seemingly silly things like how many photos you include in your profile. And my favorite that people are 17% more likely to match with someone who shares their initials on an online dating site. Like totally ridiculous. If someone shares your initials, uh, you're more likely to match with them. Uh, even take into account everything else, like their religious background.
0: Uh, I'm just curious. So on an online date, this is not relationships, like long-term relationships or marriage success. This is just being selected for a date. People will subconsciously note, oh, this person has 12 photos that they're sharing. Yeah. I have 12 photos. And so they're more likely to click on that. Yeah,
1: exactly. Because that must
0: be just a subconscious Yeah, thing. it must
1: be subconscious. And initial so, okay. probably the same thing.
0: Uh, I just have a question. like for For all the ladies out there, Jay, the producer of this podcast is, is recently single. And then what should Jay do on his dating site profile?
1: Oh, uh, well, so I think uh, there have been some measure. There have been some ways you measure success. I always think more how you pick someone, uh, not how you improve your profile. There's some obvious things have better pictures. Uh, this one caught me by surprise. Like I had horrible pictures cause I didn't really care what I looked like. And then I improved my pictures and I dramatically improved, uh, my dating prospects. There is some evidence. This is the most interesting evidence that you can improve your dating success by being an extreme outlier. So I said that it's predictable what people click on in online dating and uh, you know that conventionally attractive people, taller men, uh, men who are lawyers or military people, things that you can't necessarily change are more clicked on. But there's some evidence that if you don't, you aren't weren't gifted some of these traits. If you're not a 6'3", gorgeous male or a gorgeous woman, uh, you can do better by like take, uh, being an extreme version of something, having a high variance. So Christian Rudder has discovered that uh, if you have a higher variance, if some people really like you and some people really hate you, you'll do better. So people who do well are like women with shaved heads or people with colored hair or people with really wacky glasses. And what happens then is that you turn off a lot of people, but some people are really, really into you. And that's all that really counts in dating is to have some people really, really into you. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting strategy. Uh, if you're not like lighting up the dating world on your natural traits, if you're not Brad Pitt or Natalie Portman who everybody wants to date, uh, you can sometimes have more success by being an extreme version of yourself and then uh, and then having some people extremely into you. But the thing that I find, the, the best strategy I find in dating based on the data, is it's very similar to Moneyball, where Moneyball pointed out there's an inefficiency between what was valued in the baseball market and what actually made a good player. So data-driven teams had success going with players. There's an example of Kevin Youkilis, who didn't look like a first baseman. He was kind of a little chubby, shorter than most first basemen, but he had these great stats that made him a good bet. And... Uh, the data-driven teams were obsessed with Kevin Euclid because other teams kind of weren't properly pricing him. And dating is exactly the same, where the fact that the dating sites show that people are like consistently drawn to these qualities that don't lead to long-term happiness, uh, conventional attractiveness, really tall men, men in certain occupations, people who are similar to themselves, uh, et cetera, that you can really hack the market a little bit by focusing more of your attention on some of the groups that are not getting the attention. So shorter males, for example, and I'm not just saying this as a shorter male myself, I'm happily in a relationship. (laughs) So I'm not, this isn't self-serving advice to try to get uh, more women intrigued by men like me who are on the shorter side. But it is true in the data that there's zero correlation between height and long-term happiness, but there's this incredible correlation between being clicked on and height. So for women who are spending the heterosexual woman who are struggling to perpetually single and trying to date these six, two, six, three guys. Well, your comp- the competition for these men is ferocious. And if you end up with one of them, mm-hmm. the data says you're no more likely to be happy. And if anything, the fact that you ended up with them, it may be because they're so highly desired. They might have some n- other negative traits. Like they may be completely have some very tr- bad psychological traits that make them still available. (laughs) uh, It's a horrible place to focus your energy, focus your energy on these groups that aren't getting the attention that, that, uh, that they deserve. So, you know, even racial dynamics, uh, it's a little, you know, politically incorrect, but there is horrific racism in dating that's been shown uh, in many studies. uh, Particularly, for example, African-American women. huge uh, penalty. It's hard. It's horrible. It's not talked about. We talked about racism in, in careers and interpersonal dynamics, in police stops, in many, in getting a taxi cab, we don't talk about racism and dating, but that's maybe the area where the evidence is strongest. Uh, African American women, Asian males do a lot worse uh, in in many ways on online dating sites. And one of, and, but if you look at correlations, long term happiness, there is zero correlation between the race of your partner and how happy you are. So it's another huge inefficiency where. The market is saying that certain races is being prejudiced against races for no reason and the actual suitability as a mate is not correlated with race at all well focus more of your attention on these groups that aren't getting the love uh and you're gonna find you may get a mate with way better other qualities uh because the rest of the market is uh punishing them and i told this this is this is like great advice thank you. uh, It's almost too good advice because I told this advice to my girlfriend and I think she's thinking of leaving me and finding an Asian American male who has better qualities than me uh, and using my advice against me or something.
0: Jay, stay tuned.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Jay, you just need to wait for my book comes out and then you're in good shape. Other
0: than dating, like what other domains is your uh, book going to cover?
1: Happiness is a big area where they've done all these studies. So I became obsessed with this project, Mappiness. It's by this Guy George McCarran and Susanna Morado, where they've been pinging people throughout the day, and they're saying, "What are you doing?" and "How happy are you?" and like correlating this with other things because from iPhones and there's other there's a Mappiness project. There are other projects. Happy Air does this uh, track your happiness, and it's like kind of a revolutionary understanding of what makes people happy because we haven't had they've collected like millions of data points on asking people how, how happy you are and correlate with all kinds of things around what's going on with their life. And like they found cool things like uh, sports makes people miserable on average because the average boost when your team wins is about three points in happiness out of 100. And the average loss when your team loses is seven points of misery. Mm. So basically the average sports fan is making a horrible happiness deal, uh, almost like a drug. Uh, you know, th- th- that's another one. Another one they found is that alcohol gives people a mood boost. This is another study by McCarron where alcohol gives people a mood boost, but the biggest mood boost, and this is dangerous advice. So I don't, I know if people have history of alcoholism in their family, I don't want to suggest this, but if you don't have this history, the the biggest boost, if you're drinking is if you're doing something boring, like the chores or commuting, And if you're socializing with friends or doing something fun, you actually get only a very moderate or no boost, which is exactly the opposite way of how most people use alcohol. So most people you're having a great time with your friends and you're like, well, now I'm going to make it even better by having, having four beers. And the actual data is that it doesn't make people that doesn't actually improve your mood. But if you're doing, if you're doing chores, uh, getting ready, uh, to go out, like all these things, you're actually, if, if you do it tipsy, you're actually like get this huge boost in happiness. So I've actually, I don't have a history of alcoholism in my family. So I read this study and actually started adjusting myself a little bit where I'm like, okay, if I'm going out, uh, you know, if I'm I'm going out with friends, maybe instead of having the beer with the friends, I'll have the beer like in the shower while I'm preparing to go out and which is and take that boring activity into a fun activity, and then I'm with my friends and I'm already having fun even sober, so I don't need to drink anymore. So uh, I I take these things a little too far. Like I actually like I just read these paper and it totally changes my life, and I'm like, oh, now I'm going to change everything. I think some people uh, don't do that as much as 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 I do, but uh, either way, it's it's good to know. And it's great to know. It's it's, it's 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 always the other thing about these studies is they're just interesting. The other thing that the data shows, which was comforting is we're kind of told that there's some secret to happiness. And there are some things that are counterintuitive, drinking when you're doing the chores or drinking when you're commuting or not watching sports, even though you think you love it. Like that's a little counterintuitive. But a lot of the studies, like I describe them to people and they'd be like, that's so freaking obvious. Like people are happier in nature. People are happier when they're around beautiful scenery or people are happier. The happiest single activity is having sex. Uh, And people are like, do we really need scientists to tell us this? Like, isn't that, uh, you know, pretty freaking obvious? Or people are happier on 80 degree and sunny days uh, than they are when, when it's cold or rainy. It's like, you know, come on, like, that's just confirming the obvious. But I think there's something a little profound in the obvious nature of these findings. Because a lot of the people who are criticizing me, saying all these, you know, criticizing me are really the scientists who, who publish these work these and discovered these things are, are are saying, oh come on, I didn't need a scientist to tell me that. But then you look at their actual life decisions and they're doing none of the things that the science, these obvious things that make people happy. Most of the people who criticize me are workaholics. Well, work is the second most miserable activity. The only thing that makes people more miserable on average than working is being sick in bed. So like they're they're working all the time. They're not They don't have great sex lives because they're too busy and tired from work. Uh, They're not spending time in nature because they're living in cities where, uh, you know, where they they get these lucrative jobs. Uh, So I kind of, I conclude the book with what I call the data-driven answer to life. Uh, And the data-driven answer in life only uncovered by scientists, such as McCarran, Murado, uh, thanks to iPhones, thanks to 3 million pings in cell phones, the data-driven answer to life is being with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water having sex and it's like it's the most obvious thing in the world but like just keep that in mind when you're complaining that you're miserable like how far is your life from that life of what actually makes people happy and can you ha- spend more of your time doing these very very obvious data driven answers to life's you know to life's problems uh which you know it's it's not necessarily uh, it, it's not so easy to be by the beach. Uh, people are really happier when they're by water. It's not so easy to uh, be in an 80 degree and sunny climate. It's not so easy to have sex. You need to have a, find a partner, or, you know, presumably. Uh, but it's, these aren't impossible. And I would, my advice to anybody who's miserable is to ask whether they're putting enough time into organizing their lives so they're actually spending time doing things that the, the sometimes obvious things uh, that make human beings happy.
0: That is so fascinating. This has been such an eye-opening podcast and I can't wait to come. So you're always welcome to come back. Give us more data each time and particularly for your for your for this upcoming book. Uh, what's it going to be called again?
1: Don't Trust Your Gut.
0: Don't Trust Your Gut. Is it on sale right now?
1: Yeah, you can pre-order it, yeah. I'm going to buy it right now. I'm going to
0: pre-order it right now. And uh, definitely come back for that. And this has been great, Seth. So author of Everybody Lies and soon to be author of a new book, Don't Trust Your Gut. Come back for that one. That's coming out in May, but we'll have you on before then. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, one last question. Yeah. Data has been a big topic in terms of COVID. Like, I don't know if there's any, any insights there, but what do you see in the data about, any of the data at all about COVID that is unexpected?
1: Well, the only thing is, when COVID started, uh, I was using my Google search expertise, uh, someone suggested I do this, and I think I actually found a new symptom of COVID. I'm pretty sure I did. I wrote a New York Times column where I basically said that like every time COVID was every time every area that had a COVID outbreak, you'd see people search for eye pain uh. and like it, it was it was very clear in the data it was much higher than other symptoms and nobody was talking about eye pain as a symptom. And then I published this in the New York Times. I'm like, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, uh, but I just think people should look into this uh, because, you know, I've I've analyzed the data as best I could. I've talked to everybody I could talk to. And as far as I could tell, eye pain searches are rising every time COVID uh, spikes in an area. And it's not due to people using their screens more or pollen rates or other things you might think it's caused by. And then like about a year later, the biggest study on eye pain Found that sore eyes was the biggest uh, eye symptom of COVID and a significant impl- symptom in about 15% of patients. Uh, so I was pretty proud of that, even though it got like no attention. <laughs> but it, it, it again shows to the power of data analysis and being willing to kind of put yourself on the line. Uh, you know, I talked about Stormfront when I wrote this article about the hate site, and my dad told my mom that Seth has gone completely insane. Uh, and I think a lot of people, when I said eye pain's a symptom, they're like, Seth's not an epidemiologist. What's he doing? Publishing a New York Times article claiming he's found a new symptom. But it, t- as best I can tell, I was right about that symptom. And I think you have to be willing, when you ha- when the data shows something and you've tested everything you can think to test otherwise, to go with it, uh, rather than your gut, basically. Uh, kind of similar to the, to the, this book coming up and this advice we talked talking about in dating. And like, you know, it might feel weird to shave your head or dye your hair or dress like a weirdo or be a total nerd. Uh, and, you know, you might think that's not the right approach to, to dating, but the data has, has said that that can improve your odds of getting a date by about 70%. So even though it feels weird or feels wrong or seems a little crazy, uh, I think you have to, in this, in 2022, you have to be willing to do things that feel a little wrong, but that the data says are actually right.
0: Man, I am I am loving this stuff. I'm gonna. This is gonna change my life. I'm gonna start being obsessing on data. So, Seth, thanks again for coming on the podcast. I'm glad finally after six years ago we talked about you coming on the podcast. Finally, you're on the podcast. It's it. This is so great, and I'm looking forward uh, to the next one already. So, thanks again.
1: Thanks so much, James. This has been fun.